Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in the mountains of Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by thick, rich forests and beautiful waterfalls. Today we have a super exciting guest. We've been actually trying to line this up for many months now. It's uh, my dear friend, Jeff Coffin, and I'm going to introduce him by reading his bio from his website. Jeff is a globally recognized saxophonist, composer, educator, and is a member of the legendary and iconic American rock group, the Dave Matthews Band. You may also know him from his 14 years and three Grammy Awards with the genre-defying Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. Jeff fronts his own groups, the Mutet and the, forgive me if I mispronounce it, Viridian Trio, when not touring with Dave Matthews Band and has released 10-plus solo CDs and apparently has a new one coming out soon. Jeff is known for his passionate and fiery soloing, his melodically driven compositions, his deep involvement with music education, and his continued dedication to the improvisational musical art form that some call jazz. I like that. He's one of the top in-demand saxophonists in the world, as well as a first-call studio musician in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's lived since 1991. He's also a Yamaha and D'Adrio performing artist and clinician, and teaches at the prestigious Vanderbilt University, authored The Saxophone Book, good title, and co-authored <laughs> The Articulate Jazz Musician and runs his own record label, Ear Up Records. And here's a quote about him. Jaws drop, eyes pop open, and crowds roar. Coffin has solidified himself as a respected songwriter, eclectic musician, and contemporary pioneer of the saxophone. It's from Glide Magazine. And then... On top of all of that, he's generally a really, really nice guy, which is extra cool and has a sort of secret mystical side that maybe we can bring out a little bit. And <laughs> yeah, welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. It's good to be here. Man. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your time. As people can probably tell from your bio, you are a busy dude. I'm I'm a, I'm a busy dude, yeah. Right now I'm I'm down in Houston, um, the one in Texas, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm down here uh, rehearsing with Dave Matthews Band for our upcoming summer tour, Sweet. and a uh, uh, new record that's coming out. So we've been learning a bunch of old stuff and a bunch of new stuff, and um, you know it's amazing how many ways you can turn around twelve notes. <laughs> it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh been playing drums my whole life and i've always dreamed that sometime i'm gonna take up guitar a little bit and dave, mm -hmm. dave is actually his particular personal style of guitar always sounds like what i imagine i would play guitar like mm. if i played guitar he plays uh, sure. those really cool rhythms yeah i was gonna say that makes sense because you're you're so deeply involved with the rhythmic aspect of things and you know he grew up in in uh 
South Africa and was surrounded by, you know, African rhythms as, as he grew up. And I think that that's a big part of, of that stylistic approach also. You know, he's, he's a wonderful visual artist also. And, oh, um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he's a, a wonderful drawer and, and, and uh, very creative um, visual artist. He paints also and does different things. And so it seems like uh, you know, that kind of infiltrates into his music also, the angularity of things, these sort of, um, you know, just kind of a different slant on it, a different... Um, different perspective, if you will. And so I, I think that his, his art permeates every part of his life, not, not just his music, but his visual art and who he is as a person and how he creates. In the, in the very first uh, sort of experience in my life where something that I might call God spoke to me in actual words and this, it actually cracked me up at the time and it still cracks me up now. <clears throat> uh, the, the great being spoke to me uh, lyrics from a Dave Matthews song, which is, I think is pretty funny. <clears throat> it was, uh, intentions are not wicked. Do not be tricked into thinking so. Mm. It always just kind of cracks me up that, you know, if God speaks to me, he'll, she'll quote the Dave Matthews song. I'll have to let Dave know that. Say, hey, you know, <laughs> God's quoting you. <laughs> maybe, said so. <laughs> maybe he was quoting God. I don't. I don't know how it works. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's. Yeah, maybe it's one or the other. Who knows? Words are uh, inadequate for such things. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so maybe to to kick us off, could you tell us just a little bit about your life and background? Obviously, it's really interesting. I've known you for. I don't know, maybe 20 years or something like that. More than that, probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, other, but before that, I don't really know much about you. So uh, this will be yeah, exciting um, for me, too. Yeah, well, I, I remember, I think I first met you at that Indian restaurant, Sitar, in Nashville. Yum. And you would be in there, and, and you know, I used to go in there a lot, and, and, uh, or, or Bongo Java or something. But wherever it was, it was like someplace that, that we both frequented and uh had conversations and and got to know each other a little bit uh way back when and uh but you know before i moved to nashville i was i was going to school in texas at university of north texas used to be called north texas state university and then they changed it and um now it's known as the university of north texas and so i got my education degree my music degree down there and uh from there i i moved to nashville um previously i had been in new hampshire and I'd gone uh, part-time for a couple of years at University of New Hampshire where I was kind of learning how to practice and, and learning about discipline and um, really kind of figuring out, you know, how to do what I wanted to do. And uh, I had gone to high school in New Hampshire. I'd gone to junior high and part of elementary school in a small town in Maine, which is where I started playing, a little town called Dexter, Maine, literally in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Our, our nearest movie theater, I like to tell people that our nearest movie theater was 40 miles away. And, that's, uh, that's probably so it was like pretty, me now. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was pretty remote and we had, you know, we were living on 40 acres of land and had a farm and, and, you know, so it was kind of an unlikely place to, to sort of launch, 
um, you know, a, a musical career and, and, uh, a musical process, but that's, that's where it happened, man. That's, that's where I get bit by the bug. And, um, I was born in Massachusetts, lived there for, I think six years. And then we moved six or seven years. I can't remember which. And then uh, we moved to Maine, but, uh, yeah, music is, you know, as far back as I can remember, um, has always kind of been at the forefront for me. It's always, um, it's always made me feel a certain way mm. and it's connected me to other people and to the world and to myself and to sort of the great unknown, I guess you would say. And, uh, um, you know, you were talking about intention before with, with that quote. And I think that that's, I think that's a big part of things for me is, is the intention of, of what's being put out there and, and, you know, how that's changed over the years. And, um, but it, again, music has always kind of been that constant, like the feeling of it, you know, even though some of the reasons for playing have changed over the years and, and, um, the process and, and, and experiences, <clears throat> um, all those are, are, are different as you, as you grow and expand hopefully. And, um, but again, that, that feeling that's sort of unknown, that's sort of like, wow, what is that? And why does it feel so good? Kind of thing is, has always been there. Have you always been a, a wind player? Yeah. Um, when I first started, now, I've always been attracted to rhythm more so than harmony, and I've always been attracted to melody. So when I first started playing, when I, when I chose an instrument in school, um, I wanted to play drums, which I think most people probably do. There's a you know, heavy emphasis on, on the rhythmic aspect in music, of course. And so I think that you know, probably because we had – you know, not a whole lot of room in our house and they're loud and, you know, hard to carry around and all that. Um, yeah, you know, my folks were sure. probably like waving, waving me off behind me going, no, 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 no drums. And so my director said, well, you know, we need some saxophone players. What about saxophone? I was like, sure. I don't care. You know, <laughs> that's fine. And I, and I remember getting the instrument home and uh, it was, it was a veto. It was a brand and, you know, it's a brand new horn because we were renting it. I remember opening up the case and looking at it. It was kind of like a plush blue velvet on the inside of the case. And there's the horn. It's kind of shiny, golden colored with the lacquer and all. And then there's the neck and uh, there's the mouthpiece and the ligature, which holds the reed on. And uh, there's the reed. And then there's uh, what's called the lyre, which holds music on when you're marching. And um, there was a swab for the inside of the horn and a cleaning cloth and a mouthpiece cap, like all these parts, you know, and, and I remember looking at it and being a little overwhelmed with all the stuff that was in the case. And I was like, Oh, I'll just deal with this later. I just closed the case. <laughs> <laughs> it was too many moving parts for me. I was like, ah, and, uh, um, but that's what I started. I started on alto sax and, uh, how old were you? I, fifth grade. I think, I think we chose in fourth grade, started playing in fifth something like that. And, uh, so I don't, I don't know, uh, 10 or 11, I guess. Are you still in touch with that teacher who suggested that you play saxophone? 
Well, he passed a few years ago, but yeah, I was I was in very close touch with him until he passed. What a mm-hmm. huge influence that one little remark had in your life. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I almost quit band in, uh, I think it was sixth grade, because a bunch of my friends, I was doing a lot of sports also, and there were a few of my friends that were kind of like, yeah, you know, we're not going to do this. And, uh, and so I, I remember I had my form all filled out to drop the class. Um, and I want to say it was around, maybe it was around Thanksgiving, like middle of November, something like that. But I remember it really clearly. And I remember it was a colored sheet of paper. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so I, so I brought color? it to him. You know, I can't remember. I want to say it was like yellow or orange or maybe pink. It's like one, it, you know, like it wasn't green, uh, wasn't red. That's um, an awesome detail to to keep. Yeah, well, you know, it was a real turning point, man. Because it, you know, it, at that point, he said, uh, he said, okay, he says, well, he says I understand, you know. Um, he said, but we do have a concert coming up, and your voice is really strong in the group. You know, would you consider staying, you know, just, you know, through the concert anyway? And uh, Christmas concert or whatever it was. And I said, okay. And I never looked back from there. And so that was kind of the pivot point um, for me where it could have gone a completely different direction. Yeah, you'd be a professional uh, soccer player or something. Yeah, maybe (laughs) retired by this point. Long retired by this point, right? Um, but, uh, you know, you, you come across those moments in your life and you kind of look back and, and it's like, wow, okay. You know, what if, what if I actually had done that? You know, what would things have been like? Where would things have changed? And, uh, so, you know, I, I think in some ways the, the universe kind of has a plan. Um, you know, and I, I think that obviously we have some say in it, but, um, you know, sometimes there are those external factors that are kind of gently grabbing you by the throat and saying, I don't think so. <laughs> Universe gently grabbing you by the throat. <laughs> I think it grabs me gently that way and sometimes not so gently. Oh, right, pretty, sometimes not so gently. Pretty right. often. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Man... Yeah, so many interesting things to talk about. Um, Could you tell a little bit about your kind of just briefly the course of your professional career as a musician? You've played in some pretty incredible groups. Yeah, you know, I've done some pretty terrible gigs also um, before I started playing in those pretty incredible groups. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like anybody, we have to pay our dues coming up and, and... when I first started playing professionally, actually, it was in Maine with this director, this guy named Arthur Legassi. And it was a trio that he had called AJ's Combo. His name was Arthur Joseph Legassi. So it was called AJ's Combo. And we would go out and play. We would play, you know, dances and, and uh, weddings, uh, parties, you know, whatever, in, in, in different places. And so I started doing that the summer after my seventh grade year through eighth grade. And then we moved. So I had already gotten the taste of playing professionally. I had bought my own horn um, through money that I had earned. And 
Um, so I was playing pretty early. And then when I got to New Hampshire, you know, it was a few years before I, you know, was kind of enough in the scene there to, to start playing. But because <clears throat> my senior year of high school, I started playing out a bit. And then uh, when I got into college, I started playing quite a bit more um, and played in a lot of uh, kind of cover bands like R&B, um, pop kind of stuff. I remember I, <laughs> one of the first groups I played in was was sort of this this New Hampshire hippie band. And, you know, they were doing like Joan Armour trading tunes and, and some reggae stuff and different things, and, which was great. You know, weird keys and um so I had to try to figure out how to how to play this stuff. But I remember also that they were like, well, man, if you can play some keyboards, that would be great. So I bought this really crappy little keyboard thing that didn't really work. And <laughs> so I, I was trying to trying to play that a little bit here and there. Um, but I remember also that that we were doing this reggae tune, you know, and that go, you know, that kind of that kind of vibe that's going on and man, I, I had never even heard reggae, never mind play the stuff. And I was sort of like, uh, like, you know, trying to, trying to get that, the accent of the music. Yeah. With the downbeat um, on three. Oh, right, man. And I was so clueless. I was just like, wow, man, I've never heard this stuff before. And, and so it was great, you know, kind of out of the frying pan into the fryer kind of thing where you're, you're forced to kind of learn on the job. And, um, so, you know, I was playing uh, a pretty fair amount in New Hampshire and uh, decided, though, that, that I needed to go somewhere that um, I was going to throw myself into the deep end. And it was kind of sink or swim. You know, it, it was one of those things where, like, failure wasn't an option. Yeah. Um, at least at least not for me. It was like there's there's no way that I'm not going to do this. And uh um, I remember having an Einstein poster and, and like different quotes in, in my room and in my studio that would really inspire me. And I remember the Einstein one is it said, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds, Whoa. which is, which is pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful, man. And, uh, um, not that I thought of myself as a great spirit necessarily, but, but I felt I felt compelled, you know, I felt really driven and I felt really compelled, um, that this was my path. And, uh, um, you know, and there's always going to be people that will say no. And I'm more interested in the people that will say yes. Mm. And, uh, um, so I, I kind of, you know, I kind of took that to heart and there was, there's a really great book by Richard Bach that a friend gave me that, that really turned me around also called illusions, um, which is a really lovely little book. It's a very simple read, but I think that, that some of the things in there are timeless. Um, like one, one in particular is it says you're never given a wish without also being given the power to make it come true. You may have to work for it, however. And I was like, wow. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, um, you know, I got inspiration from a lot of different places, um, which, you know, really helped me professionally to, to, um, to kind of tie these different areas into each other. And so when I was at North Texas, I was doing um, um, a lot of R&B gigs. I went out and did a bunch of blues gigs uh, with this guy, um, uh, Greg Smith was his name, actually. 
uh, he was a blues artist down in, down in Texas. And, uh, so I cut my teeth, you know, doing the blues circuit down there and I was doing some jazz gigs. I was playing in a couple of big bands down there also professional big bands. Went to, uh, the Montreux jazz festival, um, uh, with one of those bands, we had an opportunity to play with Van Morrison, which was incredible. Wow. And, uh, um, so, you know, I was learning from everybody down there playing gigs and, and, taking a bunch of credit, like taking 21 credit hours a semester and, uh, you know, practicing between eight and 12 hours every day. So I was, man, I was laser focused, you know, and, and, uh, man, I wasn't going out. I mean, I would hang with friends every now and then, but, you know, cats would be coming by late at night, knocking on my door, man, like, Hey, Hey, we're going out. And I'd be like, I have like three more hours of work to do. And I was like, and so do you guys, <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, so, you know, a lot, a lot of those guys, you know, I don't think they're really doing very much anymore. And, uh, you know, the people that were, were focused and dedicated and, um, you know, really had a vision for what they wanted to do, uh, I think are, you know, doing, doing better for sure, you know, and on a, on a higher scale of, uh, visibility and professionalism, et cetera. And so when, when I left, um, when I left North Texas, I, I was driving back to New England, um, just trying to figure out where I wanted to go next. A friend of mine was living in Nashville. And, uh, so I was considering Nashville, <clears throat> although country music isn't really my thing. And, uh, but it was a small enough town and I was thinking, well, you know, okay, I'll, I'll drive through and check it out. So I spent, I don't know, five or six days there in the fall of 1990, like late August, early September of mm. 1990. Um, in fact, I remember I, the day I left Texas was the day that Stevie Ray Vaughan died. Whoa. That's how I, that's how I remember what day that was. Fall's and, a good uh, time to be in Tennessee too. Yeah. Yeah. It was, so it was beautiful when I came through and when, when I was going up, I was also going through DC and this is, this is another very interesting kind of crossroads for me um maybe the largest for me um having to do with my move to nashville so there was a friend of mine up there named clyde connor who was playing drums in the navy commodores which was a uh, or is like their top jazz ensemble the top big band uh, in dc for the navy and he said, oh, you know, we're looking for a lead tenor player. You should audition. So I stayed at his place and, and hung out with him. I knew a couple other guys in the band. Auditioned. Um, went really well. Had an interview. And they asked me a bunch of questions. And, you know, like, where are you living? And I was like, well, I don't you know. Nowhere right now. <laughs> I said, I'm driving home, you know. And uh, I said, I might be moving to Nashville. I might be going on a ship. I'm not sure yet. Haven't made my decision. I just got out of school and left school a week ago. So the next morning they called me and said, you know, we want to offer you the lead tenor chair in the Navy Commodores, which is a four year commitment. Um, and you go in, you have your salary, then, you know, you get health insurance, you're taken care of, blah, 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 blah. And so I said, uh, I said, wow. I said, well, uh, you know, I was a little overwhelmed. And I said, uh, you know, can I have some time to think about it? He said, well, how much time do you think you'll need? I was like, oh, I said, I don't know. I said, um, it's like an hour. And they're like, um, okay, sure, sure. 
And I said, you're sure that's not a problem? They were like, no, 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 it's fine. So I said, cool. You know, because I wanted to call my dad, wanted to call my girlfriend at the time. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it was, you know, kind of a suddenly I had to make this big decision. And uh, so I couldn't get in touch with either of them. I called back not even 10 minutes later and uh, said to the, the secretary, hey, you know, is this guy, whatever his name was, I said, is he there? She said, no, he's in a meeting. Can I take a message? I said, yes. Yeah. If you'll let him know I've decided to take the gig, that would be great. And so uh, she said, okay, I'll let him know when he's out of the meeting. Calls me back in maybe five minutes. And he says, um, um, you know, we've just had a meeting and, you know, we've decided to rescind our offer. This is the words he used. Rescind our offer because you were tentative. Whoa. And, and I thought he was jiving me. You know, I thought he was like being funny because we've been hanging out the day before. And, ha ha ha. <laughs> and, uh, um, Whoa. And, and then he kind of went military. He's like, but, you know, we wish you the best. And, you know, thanks for auditioning. I was like, I said, hang on a second. I said, are you serious? He says, yes. And I was like, I said, what are you, I said, what are you talking about being tentative? I said, I asked for an hour for four years of my life and that's tentative. <laughs> well, you couldn't tell us where you were living, couldn't tell us, you know, what you were going to be doing. And I was like, man, I said, I've been nothing but like a hundred percent honest with you about every question you asked me, you know, for, it's like absolute honesty. And uh, some of which, and dig this, man, they changed the answers to my questions. What? You know? They, they asked me if I smoked smoked pot, you know, did any illegal drugs. I said, well, you know, I smoke pot every now and then. And, and they were like, hmm, could we maybe say that it's been since high school? Like it was just kind of a high school thing. It's like, put whatever you want. Whoa. I said, but, you know, it was kind of like last week, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, I probably had some with me for that matter, you know, on the trip or whatever. But <laughs> And, you know, and they were like changing these answers. And I was sort of like, wow, man, this is out. And uh, so I said, but, but I said, yeah, I said, put, you know, whatever you want to put down there is fine. I don't care. Yeah, it's and, your, uh, your form. Yeah. And so, uh, so I, I went on a cruise ship for a couple of months. I decided to move to Nashville. I know it's a long question, but it's, 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 it's relevant to this whole situation. So I, I went on a cruise ship for two and a half months. Um, I was moving to Nashville in January of 91, got home, kind of gathered all my stuff, was hanging out. And then I get a call from Clyde, the drummer again. And he said, man, he says, you're not going to believe what's been happening down here since this thing in September. And, uh, he said, what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm moving to Nashville, you know, in like a week. And, uh, he said, well, look, man, he says, we haven't filled the gig. And he says, the gig is yours if you want it. All you have to do is show up for the audition. Like, legally, all you have to do is show up for the audition. And uh, he said, he said after, after the way they treated you, and apparently this is a thing in the Navy, he said the band almost mutinied. Whoa. Right? So basically what that means is that they went to their commanding officer's head commanding officer and filed a formal complaint against this guy. You know, because of the way, because of this whole thing with, you know, him taking back the offer, the band wanted me there, not even giving me an hour, not even giving me 10 minutes before they took away the offer, so on and so forth, right? So, so this guy gets a formal reprimand from the Navy, and Clyde says he's going to call you and totally kiss your ass and apologize, <laughs> and the gig is yours, you know? I was like, wow, man. I said, well, I'll take it, you know? That'd be awesome. It's, 
so the the audition was the same weekend I was driving through because I was going to stay with Clyde anyway in D.C. and and on my way to Nashville. So I go to the audition. The guy calls me, totally apologetic. I'm so sorry. Blah 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 blah. And uh, so did the audition. Of course, I have to have somebody else there also. You know, just legally wise, you have to have two people at the audition. And then they ended up giving it to the other guy. What? <laughs> Which was, you know, in the end. It was the greatest thing that never happened to me. No joke. And, uh, um, and so when, you know, when he called the next morning and said, oh, you know, we've decided to go with Phil, I just hung up the phone. I didn't say a word to him. I just hung up the phone and said, Clyde, I'm moving to Nashville. Wow. Uh, got my car and split. That's magical you know? event. Yeah, it was pretty wild, man. It was pretty wild. You know, it was, it was really, I knew at that moment that that was not what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah, thank goodness. You know, that the universe had stepped in and been like, you know what? No. That's the trickster face of the yeah. universe coming to say hi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Holy yep. moly. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty wild, you know. And so from there, when I moved to Nashville, you know, I started doing, uh, I mean, I was doing anything to pay my bills. I moved there with like 300 bucks in my pocket, I think, including the first month's rent, which was 250 so, you know, I got there, I was, I was debt free, but I was broke. So I was doing temp work. I was substitute teaching. Uh, I was doing a few gigs here and there, not enough to support myself yet. Um, but you know, the scene was, was pretty closed off at that time. And, um, you know, especially for the kind of stuff that I wanted to do, but, you know, I kept working at stuff and, and building relationships and sitting in when I could and meeting people and, um, I ran a jam session for many years. And while I was on the ship, I met a great trumpet player named Bill Fanning, who's been playing with me now for almost 30 years. Um, plays in my group, the Mutet. I uh, just recorded a record for him for a new project he's doing. Um, he's one of my dearest friends and, and uh, one of my musical soulmates, you know. And So <clears throat> we had a jam session we ran for about nine years in Nashville. And, a lot of young cats came through there, the Barber Brothers, Chris West, Roy Agee, uh, Pat Bergeson, which is where I met him, Chris Walters, Tom Reynolds, Tom Champietro. The list goes on and on and on. Um, and through that, uh, there was a drummer that came through named Tom Pollard, um, and he knew Bela. And so he's the guy that connected me with Bela originally. Um, um, and, uh, you know, met Bela in, in Aspen. Uh, I was out there with a guy named Max Carl, who used to be in a group called Jack Back and the Heart Attack. He's a brilliant singer. And, and so it was a five-horn band that we were playing with, traveling some. And so I met Bela and um, uh, through Vic, actually, because the Flectones were playing our, they were playing in Aspen one of the nights we had off. And I was hanging out with Bill Fanning in the morning and said, hey, you know, if, if we can find Vic, I bet we can go to the show. And sure enough, man, like within a minute, Vic is walking down the middle of the street towards us. And I was like, oh, that was easy. <laughs> and so uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys, you know, come to the show. And, you know, there might not be seats, but you can kind of stand up against the back wall. There's a bunch of Nashville guys. So a few of us went and ended up meeting Baylor that night and. He was like, man, he says, you know, I have a message to look you up when I get home. Um, you know, let's get together. Let's let's talk after the gig. And 
Um, so that's where we met and got together after we both got off the road and did some playing and sat in with them at a club called Cafe Milano in Nashville. They were doing a five-night run, and, and uh, um, the night that I sat in, Stuart Duncan, the great fiddle player, um, was supposed to be uh, sitting in, but his daughter was sick. She had the flu or something, so he couldn't make it. So Bayless said, well, man, just you know, just play the whole night with us. I was nice. like, well, I don't know any of your tunes, <laughs> you know, and uh, I was just going to go sit in originally like on a tune or two. He's like, oh, he says, well, it'll be easy. You know, he says, oh, we'll just, you know, sketch a couple of things out. Some tricky music to yeah, jump right, into. Right. I remember I wrote Sunset Road out on a napkin and taped it to my music, to my microphone. And uh, we did an Ornette tune and a couple of Christmas tunes. And, um, a couple of days later, he called and he said, you know, he said, I heard Future Man go to some places I've never heard him go to. And, you know, it was really great. And, and you know, would you be interested in, in doing some dates with us? Um I was like, yeah. And so in 1997 was when I started with them and I stayed with Baylor for 14 years. And, uh, um, at the end and, and during the beginning of that, actually, we were doing opening days for Dave Matthews and, you know, touring around the world, blah, blah, blah. And so that's where I went, met, um, Dave Matthews guys. And so in 2008, um, uh, I got a call from, um, uh, the flight tones manager, Dave Bendette. And he said, you know, Leroy Moore has been seriously injured in this ATV wreck. And they're wondering if you can come and sub for him for a few months until he recovers. Tragically, he did not. He passed a month and a half into his mm -hmm. recovery. And, uh, so I stayed on with these guys. I talked to Bailey and the guys and they were all like, you know, look, man, we haven't been doing a whole lot the last year or two. And uh, everybody's doing different projects, and Vic was doing his solo stuff. Baylor was, you know, doing a lot of a lot of different things also, and so we were we were doing more sporadic stuff than like really hard touring. And uh, he said, "Man, he says an opportunity you can't pass up. So yeah, you got to no do joke. it." So I, I did um, double duty for two years with the Flectones and Matthews um, from 2008 to 2010. And uh, um, then it was just full time with Matthews uh, at, at that point. You know, I couldn't keep doing both, and um, you know, there was a there was a conflict with one of the gigs that I had to miss with Bela on a tour, and and uh, um, you know, so it was it was a decision that was you know kind of it was kind of made for me in some ways, you know. Uh, management just said, "Hey, look, you know, we need you on these gigs, and you know, we don't want to have to sub sub someone out for your position, and uh, so it'd be best if you could be here." So, I mean, there were, you know, I, I understand, um, and uh, I'm, I'm totally committed to to this group, and I'm, you know, with them 110 percent all the way, and uh, it's a great group of people. Um, and uh, they treat everybody really fairly and, and, and really nicely. Um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of a natural um, natural movement from the Flectones into this. Everybody's great friends. And, you know, Bayless come out and sat in. And uh, Vic sat in a couple of times. And, you know, Roy comes out sometimes to hang. And so it's good, man. It's, it's I've, I've had an amazing career so far. And, um I'm incredibly grateful for it, and 
um, the, the connective points are not lost on me, those relationships that are uh, so incredibly important. And, you know, and I'm still learning all the time. I'm still learning a lot about myself and a lot about the industry and, and uh, you know, how important it is, you know, how you treat other people and talk with people and express yourself and, and you know, realize that you're part of a collective. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of compromise that goes along with it also. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic, man. It's, it's, it's I've had two of the, two of the best saxophone gigs, I think ever, quite honestly. No joke. You know? Well, thank you for sharing that. It's nice for me to hear that whole story and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it too. It's your, your journey professionally is definitely a magical one. And it sounds like, uh, you definitely worked for it. <clears throat> Not everybody practices and works so hard and keeps their intentions so focused and centered. Yeah. I know that some of our listeners will be excited to uh, kind of shift gears and kind of point our uh, topic a little bit into the kind of mystical direction, uh, bringing it toward the the sound healing one thing you've said to me that is actually a quotation that has uh, reverberates in my mind. It's one of my favorite things I've ever heard anyone say is you said something about how lucky you are or fortunate you are that you get to breathe for a living. Mm. And, yeah, it's true. And <clears throat> I'd like to talk a little bit about breath and mm -hmm. music. You've, you, um, and any anything any experiences or insights you have about obviously music as you mentioned in the beginning kind of what drew you into music and what's maintained your ultra consistent focus and love of music is this way it makes you feel mm -hmm. and <clears throat> obviously there's the the I think this is, you know, one of the greatest things about music is it doesn't just make the person playing the music feel awesome, but it also makes other people feel awesome. So you get right. to, it's kind of like getting to practice yoga or meditation or something that makes you feel fantastic, but somehow it radiates into all the people around you and makes them feel fantastic. I mean, I don't know how big the crowds are you, you're playing for with Dave Matthews, but pretty huge groups of people pretty and, pretty big groups yeah and your your good feeling that's flowing through you while you're playing is going into all those people and then they're taking it home with them could you tell us a little bit about any of your experiences with that with the with the breath and the magic of that feeling flowing through you or anything along those lines sure um yeah, I, I do believe that that it all comes back to the breath, um, and and I have for a long time. Uh, but but I am fortunate that I, I do get to breathe for a living, and um, <laughs> I'm very I'm very conscious about my breath. And um, you know, I, I when I first moved to Nashville, I, I was going back a little bit, but when I first moved to Nashville, I was dealing with some pretty serious throat problems. Um, where I was dealing with a lot of back pressure and 
my throat was bullfrogging basically. Oh yeah. Um, and so I had, I went back to, I went back to basics. I changed my gear and I went back to basics and <clears throat> really concentrated on the fundamentals, concentrated on how I was breathing and where I was breathing from, um, doing a lot of long tones, really understanding, um, you know, that process and being very aware of what was going on when I was playing. And, and, and I still am, um, it's become really ingrained in what I do. Um, but yeah, I, you know, you hear about it in, in, in yoga, how everything comes, comes back to the breath, how calming it is and how meditative it is. And, and my wife is a yoga practitioner and she talks a lot about Ujjayi, um, uh, Ujjayi Pranayama. Which, yeah, which is kind of this, uh, it's, it's almost a restriction. Breath. Yeah, it's almost a restriction in the throat and uh, it's cardiovascular and, and helps a lot of different aspects of things. Um, but I'm fascinated, you know, not only by um, the breath, but uh, by the word inspiration. Like when we breathe in, it's called it's called inspiration. That's, that's the breathing in process. Um, and when we think of, and I'll look up the definition here so I can tell you. So if you look up the word inspiration, it says the process of being mentally stimulated or to do or feel something, especially to do something creative. The second definition is the drawing in of breath. Hmm. And when we think about expiration, it's the letting go of breath. So when we leave, like when we pass, we expire. Our breath goes out of our body. It's the last thing to leave. You know, it's the first thing we do when we're born. We breathe in, you know. And the last thing we do when we expire is we breathe out. So how much more could it possibly come down to the breath than that? Yeah. You know, and, and so the, even the idea of, of, of drawing in inspiration um, through the breath, uh, it, it was said that, that in ancient times that uh, people believed that, that uh, the power of Jesus came through his breath, which is a pretty heavy thing to, to think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of stories of, of um, you know, the, the quote unquote missing years, um, where, where he was in India studying with these yogis, uh, to learn the power of healing, to learn, um, the, the sort of the power over the physical world, if you will, to be able to regulate heartbeat and, uh, um, change the molecular structure of your body and all these different aspects of, of things that would be considered miracles. Um, but it, again, it's all coming down to the breath. There's a there's a, a lovely book by Tom Robbins called Jitterbug Perfume, that uh, <clears throat> you know it's fantastical and obviously fiction. But um, they talk about um, circular breath, and that there's like when we breathe in, there's usually kind of a little stop at the top, a little stop at the bottom. Mm -hmm. But the idea of keeping it circular all the time to to keep the cleansing going on internally. Um, is a really important thing. And, 
Um, so, you know, you hear about it time and time and time and time again, uh, the breath of life. Um, you know, when I hear Bob Dylan play the harmonica, I'm always enamored because I'm like, wow, man, you get to hear him breathe. Like, you actually get to hear the breath in music. And I think it's the same thing when you're playing an instrument or singing. Uh, you know, you get to, if you listen past the words or past the sound, you're hearing breath. Mm. And, uh, and there's a lot of ways of working on it. It's, it is powerful. Like when I, I do a lot of clinics around the country, and you know, like well over 300 at this point that I've done over the last number of years. So I work with a lot of young players, college level through high school. And, uh, one of the things I do is I work on them with their breathing and, once they sort of understand how to support the sound, then things fall into place. Intonation gets better. Um, the style of the music they're playing gets better. Their articulations get better. Uh, their rhythm and their time get better. And it all gets better because they're listening. And uh, um, and the breath has a lot to do with this. It, the, it, it, it keys you into being in the moment, mm. um, as you well yeah. know. And, and uh you know, when you're in the moment, you can't be anywhere else. And, and, and that's something that I think a lot of people, most of us struggle with is being in that moment. And it's something you have to practice. It's something to work on. And so for, for me, music is my meditation. It's definitely my favorite meditation. I, I actually, another favorite is I do pretty, uh, extreme trail running barefoot so i run on really rugged you're insane yeah (laughs) on on really crazy difficult trails that are difficult to walk on i go run at you know warp speed and i i even practice uh not looking down so Uh i have to use my peripheral vision to find my steps but what i've found really fascinating is that it's it it's exactly the same feeling as playing at least in my experience as playing really high intensity improvisational jazz for a big crowd of people because mm. each each rock you don't know where it's going to be and it's kind of like it's almost like you could think of the layout of the rocks as as the you know as Elvin Jones or the, the crazy drummer sure. and you don't know where he's going to hit, but you're, you got to kind of go along with what, where he's hitting the drum and the, the rocks are, you don't, yeah, you don't know where they're going to be. And then the danger, the extreme danger of if you lose your concentration or you misstep, you fall and break your ankle. It's kind of like being in front of a bunch of people playing and you, know, yeah. you mess up and, you know, you lose the gig or, you know, you, whatever. You don't want to mess up in those situations musically. So I find it puts me in the same place, but I can go do it alone out in the forest. But there's definitely a, a very significant connection. And in order to be able to do it well, it's all about the breath. I teach a lot of people running lessons and I always tell people to switch. Just think of running is actually a breathing exercise. The, mm-hmm. the running itself is just kind of a, the icing on the cake. 
you're really breathing and then running is kind of the task that you're using to support your breathing exercise. Sure. Sure. I can see that. But absolutely. One, one thing I'd like to ask you about is, uh, you mentioned something about the heart. I've, Mm -hmm. uh, over the last number of years done a lot of experimenting and self-experimentation and working with other people regarding the relationship of the heart to the breathing. I use this biofeedback system called heart math and what it really clearly teaches you in just a couple minutes, the first time using it is that your heart's your heart's always speeding up and slowing down, speeding up, slowing down with every little glitch of our breath. And that mm-hmm. when you breathe smoothly in a sort of circular path, then your the your heart rate variability, the wave or the curve that it draws as the the kind of the map of the rate of your heart ends up turning into a sine wave. And when you go into that state that they call coherence, your breath and your heart are totally synchronized. And mm. what turns out is your, your brain waves end up synchronizing or entraining with that same rhythm. So simply by controlling the breath, the heart and the brain are synchronized. And then of course your brain is the thing controlling your breath. So it creates this sort of closed loop. And so I'm just, uh, yeah, I guess my question is, have you, do you have any particular experiences as a person who breathes for a living with its relationship to your heart? I know when you're playing intense jazz or whatnot, it's not easy to sense your heartbeat because it's kind of subtle and quiet, but, um, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm pretty aware of my heartbeat because <clears throat> over the last number of years I've, I've had what's called uh, inappropriate sinus tachycardia, which is where the inappropriate heart, to me. <laughs> it's inappropriate. It's where the heart, um, the rate goes up. It's like not. It's not arrhythmic. It, it, it's not out of rhythm, but it goes fast. Mm. And uh, um, and so I've, I'm on meds for it. I'm on what's called beta blockers, which tend to keep um, kind of a governor on the heart rate. So it doesn't just suddenly like go really fast, but it would sometimes go up to, you know, 165 or 170 Whoa. with me not really doing much. And, That's uh, really fast. Yes, yeah, really. It's it's almost like at the maximum that they recommend. But I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't be, you know, sweating or out of breath. You know, it was it was weird. I guess it was almost like a panic attack, but but I didn't feel any panic. Wow. You know, it was strange. It was strange. And uh, so I am aware of that, and, and I'm aware of, um, you know, how, how the music can elevate the heart rate. The other interesting thing also is that, that when you're counting off a tune live, almost invariably the tune is played faster than what you recorded it at. And, and I think that there's a relativity um, aspect to this also uh, in that, our heart rates are, are normally quicker when we're doing something exciting, especially playing music in front of a lot of people. There's a lot of energy. Um, and with that, um, your, your, your relationship um, to the beat is, is quicker. 
So like if your heart rate, if your resting heart rate is let's say around 80, okay, you know, and you're on a gig and it's up around 90, well, your relationship to, to that circadian rhythm that's going on in your body is faster. So when you count off a tune relative to your heart rate and relative to that pulsation in your body, it's going to feel like the right tempo, even though it's faster. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You know, it's kind and, of like so your, your graph paper has, you know, smaller squares. Right. on Exactly. It. Exactly. Yeah. Same idea. Same idea. So it's, it's pretty fascinating in, in relationship to that. And there's a guy named Milford Graves that's done a lot of research into the heart and the tuning of the heart um, to, um, uh, to listen to it and, and actually find the tone of the heartbeat. And uh, in the heart, in the heart is is a lot like a drum. Like when it's working well, it has a tone to it. And uh, like when a drum head is broken, it has a weird sound. And uh, um, so that's that's one of the ways that that um, doctors um, and uh, other physicians, you know, specialists in the area, sometimes that's one of the ways that that they will hear. Like the the, the tone of the heart will be off. And, uh, um, so, you know, you got to take care of yourself, man. That's the thing, you know, and I do, I take care of myself. Um, I eat pretty well and, and, uh, um, you know, I try to be careful about, you know, what I do. And as I get older, I just, you know, I try to keep, take better care of myself. And so I'm trying to eat better and I'm trying to exercise more and, and, uh, um, you know, cut down on my salt intake. I'm dealing with like starting to deal with like hypertension and all this and, which is pretty normal. Like over half the people in the U S have hypertension now. And a lot of it's because of the crappy food that we eat. Yeah. And, a lot um, of salt. Yeah. A lot of salt. And that affects, it affects your organs. It affects your heart. Um, you know, it affects all these different things we're dealing with a very delicate ecosystem. Um, and you know, as much as you travel, you understand that also, man, the delicacy of, of, like say a rainforest, the the interconnectedness of all of those different things, and you know I see people at, at at events where they're you know eating like huge sausage sandwiches and like a bunch of beer or a bunch of alcohol and deep fried butter on a stick. Right, yeah, and I'm <laughs> looking at this stuff and I'm just thinking, wow, man, like how do you survive? And 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 I think that. And it's not a judgmental thing. I just, I just really think that I'm like, wow, man, how are you surviving in this world eating like that and 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 dealing with those things, you know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of education that has to be um, done with respect to that. And and you know, I I feel like sometimes that that the government allows us to poison ourselves. Um, they allow people to put additives in food that are known to be bad for you, that are terrible. They're chemicals and, and, uh, you know, we've, we've tended to take the easy road through and, you know, yeah, the government classifies ketchup as a vegetable for uh, public school meals. It's, that's crazy, right? That's <laughs> absolutely insane. And, uh, you know, so there's people that are paying money to to poison us you know to say okay well you know we're gonna let you do all this different stuff and and you know all the preservatives i mean finally you know stuff is kind of turning around a little bit but i mean bottom line you know we have to try to keep ourselves healthy man and it's our own choice that's the thing we do have a choice 
and we have to make the right choice. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, inconvenient sometimes. It's inconvenient for a lot of people. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so it's uh, it's it's tricky, man. It's it's um, it's something we have to think about every day. I have a question. It's kind of shifting gears uh, a little. One thing that's really fascinated me is I I study sound quite a bit on the, in a lot of different ways. I you know record sounds from all different places. I go record sounds in pyramids and caves, and also I do a lot of analysis of sounds and you know right. of course making music. I make now I much to my surprise I make a whole lot of electronic music which I used to not dig and I think it has a lot to do with my learning to dance I electronic music gets better the more you dance it's uh definitely definitely uh yeah the more I dance the more electronic music is like oh this is why everyone likes it so much because it's really good for dancing but um one thing that really fascinates me is the question of uh, the intentions of a musician being encoded in some sense in the sound coming out of their instrument. And <clears throat> so the way I, I, I've thought about it a whole lot of different ways, of course, if you're, if you're playing, you know, some sort of composition and you're reading it off the chart, you have, of course, tiny variations in your rhythm, your phrasing, your uh, intensity levels, and of course, in some sense, are the feeling of the player, their personality, their state of mind, their state of their body. Can you know? We can see that it's potentially encoded there in in some way. You can you know feel when BB King plays a solo differently than when you feel some a studio guy covering a BB King solo. Mm-hmm. There's sure. some difference. One, one thing that's interested me and I, I actually have been conceiving of a, a study to try to actually isolate this to see if it's in fact there. But the idea that maybe when, and this comes back to the breath, when you blow a note into your saxophone, for example, mm-hmm. your breath has some sort of quiver so you know when you're just doing breath exercises yoga exercises it doesn't take long to realize that our breath is in general not perfectly smooth and that there's these little quivers and then in meditations you can start to feel that those quivers those little places where our breath isn't smooth the little vibrations in some sense in have a really strong relationship to our inner state so that as we move into a deeper more centered calmer meditation our breath gets smoother but the sure. more the more we have thoughts in our minds particular feelings particular you know not deep meditation aspects to our state the more there's those little quivers and they seem to very accurately encode our state in a, you know, a language that's obviously not words. And so what I've conceived is that, that maybe those quivers, uh, could be sort of isolated from 
so that you could almost tell if uh, you could almost use a, a device or a machine or software to um, determine or measure how inspired someone's playing is or something or just some way of looking at that part of the music. So if you play a piece and then someone else plays the same piece, there's going to be little microscopic, teeny tiny quivers in the performance that could be mm-hmm. isolated that that convey something. Um, yeah, have you thought about that part? Because obviously you're doing that all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't thought of it in that way. Um, but yes, I have thought of it. The... Um, um, like when I think about the intensity of the breath, it's like when I hear, for example, when I hear Rashawn play trumpet, Rashawn Ross, who plays um, trumpet in, in Dave Matthews band uh, in, in the section, he and I are in the horn section together. When I hear his breath at different levels of dynamics um, and in different situations, whether it's a rehearsal or whether it's, um, um, you know, on a gig situation or in the studio or whatever it may be, just warming up. Um, you know, I think about how different it is than, say, some of my students or from other players that I hear, the intensity of the breath. And, and you know, I, I come back to this word intention that you used early on in our conversation, and I think that that's a big part of it. What's the intention of the breath? And, uh, um, you know, how important is that um, in the grand scheme of things? And I think it's very important. Um, You know, the way that it um, conveys emotion, conveys uh, intensity, um, conveys style, um, um, again, conveys intention. Um, all the way through, and it's it's uh, uh, it's fascinating to me, and so I I, I do think about that um, kind of in a different way than what you're talking about, but I think that it's the same general principle, you know. And you you play in front of these just massive crowds of people, and mm. when you're when you're playing, um, obviously you. St- you have some sense of what you're playing affecting this big, massive sea of people. Do you have anything you could Mm -hmm. share about that experience? Because that's Um, that's a really fascinating experience that most people won't ever know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Yeah, it's a very interesting experience. In in some ways, it's very anonymous. Uh, Once you get into those sides of crowds, um, it's just a sea of people, you know, whereas when there's a, a, a crowd that's much, much smaller, I think that you tend to have a different intimacy level with them. Um, so I think to the intimacy with, with Matthews comes within the band itself, that we are intimate with one another on stage uh, in a way that like a small jazz group would be at, you know, say the Village Vanguard or something. There's that kind of communication and intimacy uh, on a musical level um, that's going on. Um, but I do think about reaching 
people that are out there, you know, but I'm also first and foremost <coughs> concerned with serving the music. Mm. And, and the second thing I'm serving is the musicians or are the musicians that are on stage with me and that I'm on stage with the third um, thing that I'm serving is the audience. So I'm at least fourth on that list in getting served. So I'm thinking about <laughs> those things. And, and as I serve those others, I in turn get served. It's a lot like teaching, you know? And so my hope at the end of the night is that the audience will feel like they've been on stage and I want to feel like I've been in the audience. So I want to have this reciprocal kind of experience. And uh, um, so I do think about that with them. I, I do think um, about the intention of what I'm putting out there and that I'm trying to bring joy and, and gratitude and um, a sense of, of being in this moment, a sense of emotional connection. Um, and that's one of the things that I believe that, that Dave is um, really incredible at. You know, that I think that there are people that are very charismatic that can reach a lot of people at once. And Dave Matthews is one of those people. Um, just from an emotional standpoint. Yeah, he, he feels like you're your buddy. You're in this big crowd of people, yeah. but it's like, oh, yeah, that's my buddy on stage. Right, right. If you saw me, you'd be like, hey, Dave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just like you, like you know him. And, uh, and so there are people that are like that. And, and so I think we're all trying to connect on that level. But we're also entertainers. You know, we're there, we're artists, but we're also entertainers and, uh, and, and people pay good money to come out and hear us do what we do for the experience that they get. And, uh, so it's a lot of, a lot of different things wrapped up into a particular, uh, package. Yeah. It's and, uh, it's all really important stuff, you know? Hey, um, I know that you, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but um, you have a lot of things to do. So I, do. I would I like do. to take this opportunity to make sure that you get a chance to tell people about, you know, your website or your albums coming up or concerts or anything that you want sure. to share with everybody. Sure. Well, we're about to start uh, the Dave Matthews Band 2018 Summer Tour. And uh, that website, of course, is DaveMatthewsBand.com. And we'll be all over the States uh, promoting a new record. Um, and the new record is coming out um, June 8th, I believe, is the date. Nice. And uh, um, so it's, it's, it's really a wonderful recording. And we're all uh, very excited about it. The record's called Come Tomorrow. And uh, yeah, June eighth is the date. Yeah, I've got it right here on my computer now. June eighth, and so uh, one month deadline. One countdown. month. Yeah, right, a month from today. Exactly, a month from today. And uh, and personally, I've got a couple of records that I'm about to drop. Um, Man, how do you make should... so many records in your Man, free I just time? Stay busy. I just stay busy. You know, <laughs> that's amazing. And uh, but uh, the first one is a, a duo project I did with a great. Japanese drummer named Tatsuya Nakatani. Whoa. And uh, it's just, just the two of us. And it's really interesting. He bows um, gongs and singing bowls and um, uses cymbals on his drum heads. And he has sort of a, it's not really like, it's like he didn't make the kit, but it's, it's sort of pieced together of, of different 
sounds that he wants to use. So he's really an eclectic sound artist. I'm excited the, for that one. It's really nice, man. The What's record's it called? called? It's called Flight, F-L-I-G-H-T. And uh, my wife, Leoko, did the kanji on the cover. Uh, it's just going to be a digital-only release. And uh, it'll only be available uh, for download on CD Baby and probably on my site because iTunes won't allow you to price a record based on the entirety of the record. They, they price it per track. Mm. So if we put it on iTunes, we wouldn't be able to charge any more than $3 for it. And I refuse to do that. Yeah. You know? I had and, a uh, similar issue because I have a, I have a couple albums that are one 60-minute track. Right. And I don't want to... Well, you charge a dollar for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a bunch of crap. Uh-huh. And the other project I have coming out is, uh, is a, um, a recording of um, what you would consider to be jazz standards. It'll be my one and only jazz standards recording. It was done live at the Jazz Workshop in Nashville um, with Dale Armstrong on drums, Roger Spencer on bass, and Bill Altvader uh, on piano. And it's just a romp. It's really fun, and uh, that'll be digital only also. Uh, it's called Shout It Out um, Spirit Music. And uh, it's just kind of irreverent and funny <laughs> and uh, like very tongue-in-cheek. And, and um, you know, I just I think it's, it's kind of a good example of, of how we hear those tunes. And, um, you know, my concentration and focus has always been on original music. And, and it will continue to be on that. But, but it felt like... You know, it felt like the appropriate thing to put out. So that'll be out uh, probably next week. I'm just waiting on the masters and everything else is ready to go. Did you play Cantaloupe um, Island? No. Oh. No, it's a great tune, though. That's always one of my favorites to play. Yeah. I played in, in the Fisk Jazz Ensemble for four years and oh, yeah. I always get stoked when we played Cantaloupe Island. It's fun for the drummer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a funky groove. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and Dale sounds amazing. Everybody sounds amazing on it. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and then you have a uh, website. Yeah. Yeah. My website is jeffcoffin.com. That's J E W F C O W F I N.com. That's correct. Yep. And, uh, the, hey, thank you so much. Um, so I'm just picking up a package here at my front door at my hotel. Um, the, the record label that I have, I have my own record label also called ear up records. And that's earuprecords.com. And uh, there's a bunch of local artists from Nashville that um, have their stuff on there also. And it's, it's really cool. It's very eclectic. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's a bunch of really great stuff on there. So uh, people can check that out. And, and most of that stuff is, is available on iTunes. Uh, we put stuff through CD Baby also, um, which allows the artist to keep um, – um, complete control over their music and to um, earn as much money as they can uh, when people buy it. Uh, it's also, you know, and all the stuff is on Spotify and those kinds of things, but we encourage people to, Actually, to buy a download get the album. Um, yeah. Get the record, you know, support, support local art. And, you know, people are going to go out and spend five bucks on a latte. And, uh, you know, why not spend five or 10 bucks on, on a local artist that's, you know, struggling. And uh, I second that um, and I third it. Yeah, yeah, and and even on my own stuff, you know, I'm not, I'm not struggling, but I'm, I'm, you know, putting a lot of time and a lot of my effort and a lot of 
uh, my resources, um, you know, personal and financial into, into these projects. And, uh, um, you know, not only for me, but for these other artists that I'm working with also. It's, it's important stuff, and I, and I just I feel like it's important to find creative ways of being creative. And uh, so those are things that, that I like to concentrate on and that, that I'm really interested in, you know. And you're a definitely creative guy. I remember, I, I don't know if it's the first time I ever heard you play or if it's just the first time I really heard you play. But I definitely remembered standing there and it was like, I don't know how to say it. I, I grew up listening to, you know, Miles Davis and John Coltrane ex- excessively. Mm-hmm. And I probably still do, but not quite as, I mean, I just listened to John Coltrane and Miles Davis all the time. And when I heard you play, heard with a capital H, finally it was like really blew my mind that you actually take it to that place and it really delights me i don't know if that place i don't want to say there's just like one place but you i know john coltrane said something about i don't remember the exact quotation but base something along the lines of when he plays it's a life or death experience that he's Mm -hmm. he's you know it's life or death. He's taking it that seriously, that moment. He's giving every drop of his soul to what he's doing in the moment. And you you just do that over and over again, every solo I hear you play. So that's a big deal, and I appreciate it. Well, thank that. you, man. Well, I appreciate it, too, that, 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 you can, that you can hear that with the capital H. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, because, I mean, for me, it, it, it really is that. I mean, it's, you know, we have to give everything every time we play. And, and you know, I just don't know any other way to do it. I'll be quite honest with you. I just, I don't. Um, you know, there's there's no sense in, like, phoning it in or, or giving something part way. It just, you know, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. Life's too short. It might be your last solo, man. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. one day it will be. I mean, hopefully that day is a long way off. But, yeah. Uh, but yes, one day it will be. Yeah, and uh, and I want to make it count every time, man. Because here's the thing, you know, people are listening, and uh, and the universe is listening, and and the and you know this too, man. The vibrations that we put out there, um, you know, are important. And again, it comes down to that intention of things, and and uh, you know the importance of 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 what we put out into the world. Um, so I, I try to be conscious of that, and and you know I try not to try not to do any harm. You know, um, I'm trying to, to to elevate and to lift and to inspire and be inspired, and um, you know I'm I'm looking for all that stuff too all the time. Well, you're doing an excellent job. I uh, well, thank you, bro. So are you. <laughs> thanks. I hope that uh, the listeners are. Um, smart enough to seek out your music and get some of your CDs and even better see you in concert because you are an extraordinarily inspiring musical performer. Well, thank you. And I, I think that they'll be stoked for that. One question, this is actually kind of just personal, but um, the the album you made with the Japanese drummer, um, mm-hmm. the duo, 
Are you guys gonna play on a tour or anything like that? I'd like to. Well, we'll probably that. we'll probably do some dates. Um, I'd like to do something at Rudy's. Um, you know, some kind of like CD release. Well, I hope I'm and, there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure when he's coming through town or when we'll have time to do it, but you know, we'll definitely do that. And and um, you know, I'll probably have CDs made up for that also, so we can sell CDs and um, that kind of thing. But it's 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 a lovely project and. I'll have all my stuff on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that. So people can find me out there. And um, so, yeah, you know, just trying to, trying to, trying to keep it rolling. To close this out. um, Is there any last word of wisdom or something you'd like to say to everybody to, to end this? Yeah. Well, you know, I I think so. I mean, I, I think that, that one of the most important things out there is to become a, a good listener. Yes. And uh, I think that it's the most important fundamental in life, quite honestly. And uh, so I, I think that, I think that, you know, if we're all practicing the art of listening, I, I think that, that that's a really good place to start um, every day and every conversation and in every moment, you know, that uh, through listening, we can have everything. And without listening, and just knowledge, we can have absolutely nothing. And I think that we're seeing prime examples of that every day, not only in social media, but, you know, with, within our leaders and, and on both sides of the aisle. I'm not just saying. Leaders with a lowercase L, um, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so I think that, that the art of listening is hugely important. And I would encourage people to practice it at, at, at the deepest level they can. Yes. That is uh, something that has been said on – maybe every episode of this podcast is yeah. it's nice that there seems to be kind of one fundamental message that everyone's sharing and it yeah most of all comes down to listening yeah and and, and i'll say this too as as an addendum to that don't forget to breathe <laughs> <sighs> right feels good doesn't it it does indeed <laughs> Well, thank you, Jeff Coffin, for joining yes, us. Thank what, you, Mr. Anderson. What an honor and a treat. Well, as always with you too, my friend. And thank you to our listeners. Until next time, this is Thomas Orr Anderson on the art and science of sound healing. This podcast is brought to you by Phisonics Sound Immersion Technologies, makers of the world's highest fidelity sound immersion systems. Phisonics.com, P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S.com.